Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Matthew Christopher, creator of the Abandon America book series, website, and the podcast you're listening to. Thanks for listening, and I hope you're enjoying it so far. If you are, and you'd like to support the podcast and help keep it going, there are three things you can do that'll really help out. The first is simple. Just tell your friends and family about it, or leave a positive review on your podcast platform if they support it. Good word of mouth makes a huge difference. Second, if you'd like to hear early episodes and see exclusive essays and photos that aren't on my website yet, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash abandonedamerica. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash abandonedamerica. Third, if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, just drop me a note at admin at abandonedamerica.org. That's a-d-m-i-n at abandonedamerica.org. Every little bit counts, and I've got some really exciting episodes that I think you'll love coming up. Don't forget, you can also visit my website, abandonedamerica.us, for tons of photo galleries and background info on hundreds of abandoned sites, or order my two Abandoned America books from your favorite retailer. We're back with part two of our discussion of abandoned theaters. In part one, we covered why so many theaters were built, the turning point where they fell out of favor, and what led to so many closing. Today, in part two, we'll talk about a specific theater, the Victory Theater in Holyoke, Massachusetts, and get to the bottom of how Holyoke went from being one of the richest towns in the United States with seven different theaters to one of the poorest in its state with most of its architectural heritage destroyed. Likewise, the Victory went from being the town's most prominent entertainment venue that hosted performers like Bing Crosby and the Marx Brothers to a building that was abandoned for over four decades. I'm joined today by my friend, theater historian and author of the After the Final Curtain book series, Matt Lambros, and together we're going to find out why bringing back the Victory might just be the key to reviving Holyoke's downtown. I'm Matthew Christopher, and this is Abandoned America. talked about in the introductory uh, episode my, my cat is is here helping me out uh 
with the recording here, giving me boops and trying to rub his face up against the microphone and everything. Oh, so, perfect. Uh, say say hi to Prince, folks at home. He can't hear you because this is a recorded thing, but maybe he'll feel it in his little cat heart. I was going to say, just people can send in messages to your cat then. I know, I know, right? I'll, I'll read them to him and he'll not care. <laughs> so basically, one of the things that I mentioned in the introductory episode that I really like to do personally is I like going into kind of the um, greater context of individual places and how that can kind of then be applied to a variety of places. For example, you know, we're going to talk about the victory. And I think uh, the town there, there's kind of stuff that uh, really fits in nicely with what you were just talking about. I was actually uh, really happy because I think it's some great complimentary info. And I think there might be a couple things that you did not know about the victory, uh, which, like I said, uh, or at least Hollyoke in general. Um, the other thing that's kind of cool is, again, as we mentioned in the um, introductory episode, that was where we really first started hanging out, yeah? Yes. So that was... Um, uh, we basically were doing photography workshops there, and that was something that, I mean, you know, it is both of our business, but it also was paying money to the theater or uh, the, the organization MIFA, Massachusetts International Festival for the Arts, which uh, we'll get into a little bit here down the road. But yeah, so that's that's kind of a, a cool little tie-in there too. So basically, when it comes to Holyoke, the thing that, you know, kind of starts all of this off is that um, the, the Holyoke Canal system is built in the 1840s and also Holyoke Dam. So this is like a planned industrial town. Uh, it's one of the, the earlier cities to be built on a grid system in that area. And they planned it as kind of an industrial hub. And that is exactly what it becomes. Holyoke, by the late 1800s, it's the one of the largest silk manufacturers in the United States. It is the largest paper manufacturer in the United States. And this is the part that I think this is the fact that you will not know. It also is one of the larger alpaca wool manufacturers uh, in the U.S. So basically, it's making, they're making like 80% of the writing paper in the United States there. And then it's known as the uh, the paper city. It's like 100 80 or 190 tons a day of paper that they're producing. And it's the second largest city, which is Philadelphia, my town. They're, they're doing over two times as much as that, which uh, if you think about the fact that they're making 80% of the writing paper and they're making two times as much as Philadelphia, it doesn't really work out in the percentages. But, you know, I just pull this stuff off the internet. I don't know how it exactly adds up. So anyway, Holyoke becomes a very rich town because of this. In 1928, it's like the richest city per capita in the United States. And you have all of these immigrants that are coming in. And you'll remember probably when uh, you and I were walking around with our friend Rob there, he was mentioning about how uh, the immigrants would basically get a train straight up from like New York City and immigrating. They would come to the train station there, somebody who is like family member, a cousin or whatever, would meet them at the train station, then walk them off to their particular neighborhood, uh, their, their new home. So you have uh, Germans, Italians, Jews, Poles, Scots, all of these people are coming into the city in the early half of the 20th century. And what I remember correctly, when they were coming into the city, they moved into housing that was owned by the mills, right? Yes. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of places, I think 
Right. It's like your company town kind of thing. And that seems to be exactly what this place was. So, yeah, you know, you, you have all of these these different ethnicities that are coming into uh, the town. And because of the fact that it's this melting pot, I mean, basically about 50 percent of the residents are born in another country at this point. And you have a lot of different languages and a lot of different cultures and customs. So that means you're going to have a lot of different churches, but it also means that you have a lot of different theaters that are going to be playing things for all of these uh, different populations. So that brings us to the victory. The victory was the seventh theater in the town. Um, it's supposed to be the, uh, the best of them. It opened, uh, they started planning it in 1912, but it opened up in 1920 built for 1,600 people, and it was built by the Goldstein Brothers Amusement Company, who were, uh, their whole shtick was uh, building Nickelodeons, actually, which, uh, mm-hmm. you know, kind of plays into what you were talking about. I'm sure you're pretty familiar with them, yeah? A little bit. I'm, I'm more familiar with the Western Ma- uh, Massachusetts Theaters Incorporated, which was the company that they, they ran, than I am about them themselves. Something interesting is uh, I had the theater as having 2,400 seats when it opened, but a lot of the theaters would inflate their seat size to sound bigger than they were. And when they got more modern seats installed, the seat size would go down. Oh, that's interesting. Well, because the modern seats are larger than the uh, the seats that were probably initially installed, especially in the early uh, 1900s. Well, you know, the other thing, too, is that I think, and you're probably well aware of this, too, is when you start researching the history of places, it can be a little maddening because you have one number over here, one date over here, one number over there, sometimes the one that takes off. uh, For example, the fact that they started planning this in 1912, you might read somewhere, oh, that was the year that it opened or something. And then uh, newspaper articles and the internet pick that up and run with it, but it's not exactly the correct date. So I think particularly seating numbers seem to be one of those things for the reason that you mentioned. Yeah, that is very true. Uh, I've found that there's a great website out there called Cinema Treasures. It's an awesome resource. However, it's just as trustworthy as Wikipedia, which right. is not very. If you can, I always try to find cooperation uh you know if i see a number i I try to find another place that says the same number especially from around the dates when it opened um if you can find in in new york city i was able to find a lot of uh the initial uh certificate of occupancy oh yeah that's a good idea and then going from there that you're able to get a better sense of what the actual size is because they have to list it on there but in the early newspaper articles especially ones launching a theater sometimes they would round up by a couple hundred seats and that's not what they had. It's just to try to sound bigger than they are, bigger than you know the theater next door that has already been opened. Yeah, I mean that uh, that sort of dogs every aspect of researching places. This isn't a theater, but the Catskill Game Farm, which is the uh, largest privately owned zoo in the U.S., and was like this absolutely huge boomer vacation destination that tons of people went to. And I was researching that for my second book. I have, I think at this point, three or four different dates that are uh, several years apart, and you can make a compelling argument for any of them, uh, which is a little frustrating because, for example, I think it was, uh, you know, one date is the one that everybody reports, one date is the one that a direct interview with the guy who founded it said, so you would think that would be it. There's another one where they have a 
these, I think it was like 20 or 30th anniversary paraphernalia that was printed for the park that if you subtract 20 or 30 years, it's a totally different date than any of those. So yeah, I, I always think that's a good thing though to mention is that you know, your your numbers are only as good as your information. And sometimes information out there is inaccurate. But anyway, so back to the Goldstein brothers doing their uh, neighborhood Nickelodeons. The victory was supposed to be their crowning achievement. And being that it was opened in 1920, it was named for the recent Allied victory. That's part of the reason they had that eagle medallion over the stage that um, is is very ferocious and imposing looking. It was uh, the last and the finest theater in Hollyoke. So one of the things that was their selling point was that you could buy a ticket, one ticket, and get two shows. You got a silent show and a performance on stage, and they had the music from the symphony orchestra, which you also mentioned earlier about how a lot of these places had their own orchestras too. You have a 1939 Art Deco update, uh, and then it was basically turned into a movie theater after it was restored following a 1942 fire. So a lot of this is the part where you really start to see the, uh, you know, the kind of uh, train going off the rails and what you were talking about in the 50s and 60s. And also something that I, I read about, it was, it was, uh, theater was open 24 hours. The reason behind that, it was, uh, Holyoke was an industrial town. People worked for a second and third shift. And this way, people working the late shift or working second shift could come off and still go see a movie. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you think about it, like the amount of people that are in the town, the amount of wealth that's in the town, the different populations, and this being like the finest theater, it's really kind of a neat thing and and an important part of the town's history, which, as you'll see, a lot of it was lost basically in the uh, 50s and 60s. A lot of the businesses that were there migrated out of out of the city, and um, paper and textile in particular first made their way down um, south into the southern states, and then um, either con- kept continuing south out of the country or moved to Korea and China. The Skinner Silk Mill, which was uh, one of their their really big employers, burned in 1962, and uh, there's a, a quote from one of the town residents saying. During that period in the 60s, there were fires every night. Business was so bad, guys would figure, I'll just burn it down for insurance. So a lot of the town's history just burned. That's horrible. Yeah. That's something that, uh, unfortunately, you see a lot with uh, abandoned buildings or even now that sometimes they mysteriously go up in flames. There's a certain hotel that I'm not going to name that I photographed quite a bit, and the owner's what I had heard is that the owners talked to the local fire department about doing a controlled burn demolition. And I think the fire department quoted them like $15,000 to do it. And then two weeks later, it burned down. What a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that is a huge thing. And, and that happens with not only property owners that want to get insurance, but also arson, unfortunately. I mean, if you have places that are burning, I'm sure that there are people that We'll just kind of copy that or start fires anyway. um, So all of these places that were like the town's architectural heritage were just destroyed. And you had this 
really beautiful Romanesque revival opera house. I think there was like a Knights of Columbus building that was across the street from the Victory, where now there is a parking lot, a large parking lot and a McDonald's, probably the sketchiest McDonald's I've ever been to in my life. I know when we did the, uh, the workshops, uh, you would go over there and there were literally people doing heroin in the bathroom. Yeah, and do you remember, do you ever watch the show Rick and Morty? I saw a couple uh, episodes of it, but I haven't seen enough of it, really. I believe it was like season three or so. They did a whole episode, and part of it was a a joke to bring back, have McDonald's bring back its uh, Szechuan sauce, which was Mm -hmm. uh, from the Mulan movie in like 1997. And McDonald's did bring it back and limited it at first, and... Uh, there were two in Massachusetts that had it. One was in Boston, and the other was that uh, McDonald's in Holyoke. <laughs> so heroin and and your your special sauce. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. It's it was. I mean, that was definitely a, a really sad thing. Is you know, kind of going from this abandoned theater with an abandoned hotel next door uh, that are just gorgeous, and then. Yeah, it's just a large parking lot and um, a lot of people looking like they're really, really high at the McDonald's. So, I mean, basically, that's where Holyoke went. Without the industries, there weren't any businesses left or a few businesses left. Uh, The town split into poverty. It's one of the poorest in the country. And in 1979, Victory couldn't support itself anymore and it closed. So... 78. Was it 78? December 15th, 1978 was the last day it was open. Interesting. Well, that's uh, good that I have you here then. So basically, uh, you know, it it closes in 1978 then. um, And at this point, like, I'm one years old when the theater closes. And, And that was the thing that kind of stuck with me when I saw it too, was that for the entirety of my life, just about this place has been sitting there abandoned with nobody in it. I mean, there there were meat that used it a little bit. We'll get to that in a second. But for the most part, it was just empty. That's that's kind of a sobering thing to think about a place being abandoned as long as you've been alive. Well, yeah. And, you know, honestly, it, it, so it closed in 78. And, you know, I was negative four at the time. Uh, <laughs> and the city of Holyoke seized it for unpaid taxes in 79. And then a group of a group was formed called Save the Victory Theater in 1984 to try to bring it back. And they hired a company to see if it was even economically feasible to do that. And they initially found out it would only cost four million, well, only cost four million dollars to uh, restore it. But then it kept, you know, they kept not being able to raise the money and the theater kept getting worse. Right. That's exactly it. You had the Massachusetts International Festival of the Arts basically saw it as an opportunity. The executive director pled for a chance to save it. The town basically nixed a couple of other ideas, which were a gentleman's club and a church, which are about as uh, separate as you can get. And it was sold to them for $1,500 under a reverter clause, which basically said if they couldn't get the money, uh, the, the ownership would go back to the town. And that was kind of the uh, moment where they hung their big banner in front of it that said victory is ours and so as you were saying then after that point like the cost just kept spiraling right save the victory was in 1984 and it that went until sometime in the 90s or i believe and when it became about 10 million dollars to restore it they walked away and then mifa came in and um and they ended up purchasing it in 2008 and that's when they put the banner up and initially and 
now I think the, the last estimate I heard was it was going to be uh, about $45 million to restore it. But I don't know if uh, that was a, about a year ago. So it could, costs could have gone up. I know they did some work on the roof recently. Well, one of the things that makes it so difficult is, uh, and I think a lot of times there's this perception of, and, and I, I will admit that I'm this way too. You're like, why is this taking so long? Why is this something that, you know, why are you missing these benchmarks? But it's a, a really uh, expensive and complicated process, right? I mean, you have to hire uh, architectural firms that specialize in this. You have to navigate the tax credits. Uh, to do this. And that's something that Mifa's uh, director basically said to me, you know, it's it's not like going out and getting a furnace. You don't just like look in the yellow pages and pull a name from it. Um, these are highly specialized firms that do it and a lot of paperwork in a pretty complicated process. I mean, basically what they're doing is a total gut renovation of it, which uh, as he described it is they're pulling everything out of the building figuring out how it fits together and then putting it back in the building again. So I know he had talked about, you know, they uh, were going to be restoring some WPA murals that they found in the building that were by Vincent Maragliotti, which uh, if I butchered that pronunciation, I apologize. And uh, they also found silk that was behind the, uh, the cloth in the walls. And they said that that was uh, thick as a rug and presumably from Skinner. So he was very excited about that. But basically, you know, they're they're trying to figure out the whole history of the building from 1920 to 78 and incorporate that into it. So it does sound like a really Herculean effort, especially when you consider the state that the town is in. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a, a restored theater. Uh, you know, you'd think, why would you, in a, in a town that is in that, that state and is one of the poorest in the country, why would they need a, a restored theater like this? Why would you waste waste your money doing that? And what that does is, I mean, theaters like this, and if they get the right programming in there, brings people. And then, I mean, so just, I can use the Kings as an example, because you know, I, I, I've spent a lot of time researching that one. Uh, just in the time uh, that I photographed it, when I first went there, the, the area was, it's not the greatest in Brooklyn. You know, there were some stores, uh, a lot of mom and pop stores, which is very nice, and but a lot of empty storm, storefronts. And when the res restoration started, and I don't know if this is by design or just complete coincidence, uh, a Dunkin' Donuts opened across the street from it, like, uh, it's like within a month or two after the restoration kicked off then one of the empty buildings across the street was demolished and a gap went in and a hotel was built and a new gym and i believe a restaurant is going in there as well and it, and that's just since the theater opened and so you see that kind of stuff happen a lot at these refurbished theaters once they people start coming you know they're going to want to go out to eat before or after the theater they're going to want to spend time in the area before the show or after the show and you'll see like you know the i forget the name i think it's brennigan's or there's an irish pub around the corner from the victory that kathy always uh kathy from mifa always says oh come on let's meet here brennan's i think it is actually you know let's meet here that place you know victory uh that if that reopens that place is going to be slammed all the time so that is uh exactly what they're talking about in terms of the hope for the theater. It's not just something where they're like, 
let's just open this so we have a place for our theater troupe to perform or something like that. Uh, the, the ambition is a lot bigger. It's, it's something where they're thinking this is really a chance to revitalize the whole neighborhood. As you mentioned, theater goers are going to go to restaurants uh, before or afterwards. They're going to maybe shop around the area. So it's definitely one of those kind of businesses that sets up ancillary businesses around it. And that's the plan. That's the hope is that it'll do something like that for Hollyoke. And it's not as crazy of an idea as it sounds initially. I mean, um, certainly New York is a much different creature, but I mean, there was a point where the theater district there was endangered, right? Probably the, uh, I would say the late seventies to probably, I remember probably the early nineties and I don't want to speak positive of this guy, but uh, Rudy Giuliani changed a lot of that. Times Square was not a tourist destination. Well, right. I mean, basically, you have a lot of these theaters that were torn down in the in that period, too. And it wasn't looked at as a place that you wanted to go. And it was advocacy that, that changed that mm-hmm. perception. And, you know, at this point, because of Giuliani, right? Uh, I mean, or really the advocates, I don't want to credit him with it. But in 2012 to 2013, they said that Broadway sustained 87,000 jobs and generated $11.9 billion. So that's an area that went from becoming this kind of undesirable area to uh, something that people love to go to. And, and so what was the process with that? In New York? Mm-hmm. Uh, with Giuliani being a campaign to close them, the porn, where they had all, all the theaters in that area had kind of turned to porn. And so, you know, and like you said, it was a lot of peep shows and he uh, petitioned the city council. They agreed to new rules for X-rated video stores and topless bars and theaters that they couldn't operate within 500 feet of residences, schools, and houses of worship. Which so, is pretty much everything. Which is everything in New York. And then uh, Disney stepped in and bought, I don't know if they bought or they leased, the New Amsterdam Theater and restored it. And they started putting on plays there. And so that kind of was a domino effect from there. Other theaters started to be renovated. And, you know, there was always some theaters, uh, there were always theaters in Broadway that were, or in, in that area that were showing plays and musicals. And that was happening the whole time. But like two streets away, there were theaters showing, you know, like Debbie Does Dallas and Deep Throat. So, I mean, in that sense, like, uh, it's interesting because that area really flourished again because of what was there in terms of the theaters and bringing them back. I mean, that's like a, a huge moneymaker. But, it, you know, a lot of that was from gentrifying, essentially, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, gosh, you know, the, the ticket prices and things like that, I'm sure, are way out of you know, most average people's means at this point. Well, I mean, maybe not this year, but... Well, they're all closed till January at the earliest. So, you know, back to Holyoke, this is something where, you know, theoretically, even though it's never going to hit the success of somewhere like uh, Broadway, you know, having an active theater there could entice other arts businesses, could entice other restaurants. And oddly enough, there are a couple things that are kind of going for Holyoke. I mean, uh, in 2015, Popular Mechanics ranked it as the sixth best city for startups in the United States. And one of their former paper mills, the Massachusetts Green High Performance Computing Center stores over 1.1 petabytes for companies like AMD and Intel. Uh, And so, I mean, it's an area that has potential for something like that to really make a positive difference. 
And I think uh, the other thing too, that was kind of interesting when I was reading about Holyoke is because of the dam system, the city is in 2016, it was like between 85 and 90% carbon neutral and they're shooting for 100%. So they're really trying to kind of get on this thing of, you know, basically uh, green energy kind of technology, things like that, uh, and, and revitalize the city. That's awesome. Um, hopefully all this comes together and we see, like I'm, I can't wait to go and hopefully see a restored victory. I mean, personally, I'm gonna go photograph it while it's being restored. I'm just gonna say that. I'm definitely. Right gonna be all up all over that but uh i would be very excited to go to see a show at the victory and then go get a something bite to eat down the street from it you know something similar i used to go to a lot of concerts in asbury park there was a festival called uh, skate and surf and when i was in high school and college we uh, a friend of mine and i would road trip down there and go for three four days and i remember that boardwalk being a sketchy sketchy place and there being a lot of abandoned buildings and mm -hmm. I remember, you know, obviously I might have gone in most of them. But then I went back, uh, I think it was in 2011 or 12, and all the abandoned buildings were gone and the boardwalk was completely revitalized. And there were a lot of, uh, a lot of stores that weren't there and restaurants. And it was, it was, very, it was very cool to see. Yeah, and, and that is an exciting thing. And I know both of us have done things like that, but you particularly with theaters, you really are somebody who's not just there when they're abandoned, you're also there through, if you're able to, if you can get access to it through the whole restoration process. And that's something you really advocate for. I mean, maybe, you know, talk, uh, maybe you could tell a little bit about like the work with THS that you do and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. So I, I'm a board member on the Theater Historical Society of America. have been kind of traveling around uh, the country for years photographing historic, like abandoned theaters, but anytime one has been restored or is in the process of being restored and I can get to it, I try to photograph it in the middle of it and then after, uh, because I feel like just having, I, I love seeing buildings that I've shot come back to life. That's like, it's been my favorite part of this project yeah. uh, that I've been going on. I, you know, I've shot a lot of other buildings, I, you know, industrial buildings, the churches, asylums, and for the most part, you don't see them return to life. You know, they're, unfortunately, most of their fate is being demolished. Right. The majority of them. And, you know, that is true for the majority of the theaters I've shot. They will probably end up demolished uh, as well. But, there, I feel like there's a larger percentage of them that do have a chance. And that's why I work with, you know, the Friends of the Variety Theater or MIFA or any organization that's looking to restore any of these places. Then you give whatever help I can. Right. And that's, I mean, that's a pretty exciting thing, I think, for the people that are working on them. I know it's uh, really a long uphill fight, but once you have something like that that's back in the community, it seems like people are really proud of it and rally behind it. I remember when I went to see the Variety Theater in Cleveland, um, there were all these Valentines that people had left up on the door outside that were like, you know, we love this place, this, you know, save this place, it's so important to us. And I mean, there were dozens of them. And it was like the whole front of the building was covered with these. They were, they were a little bit soggy because it was a, a while after Valentine's Day, but it was just super sweet. And you know, something like that, you realize that it's not just a kind of a niche thing where 
only the people, only this small group of, of theater nerds or something care about it. It's something where there's a whole group of people in the community that are kind of pinning their hopes on a place like this coming back. And like I said, I think that's really cool that you do that sort of advocacy and you work with places and try and get the word out about them uh, so that they can be successful in it. Yeah, it, I mean, I, I enjoy it. It doesn't feel like work to me. It just feels like, you know, something that should be done. Uh, one, one, like I, when there's a piece of unsolicited advice I offer to every, every group, and I always try to tell them, you know, open your doors. Do let people in as much as you can, as, as you know, to where you are allowed, where it's safe. Because the more people that come through the doors to see the places, the more they'll be in awe of it. But the more they'll feel the community, especially if they're from the community, they'll, you know, they live near it, they'll feel a sense of ownership of the building. And I feel like when you have that, they want to fight for it even more. Right. I agree with you 100%. And the other thing that I always think is kind of an interesting angle of this, too, is there are a lot of people that are very pessimistic about restoration projects in general. You know, it's like I see this all the time when I'm posting things online that they're like, oh, you know, that's too far gone. With the SS United States, for example, which is like one of the two ocean liners of its type that are left. Uh, people say, oh, you should just sink that for a reef. It's just a hunk of metal. Why do you need that? Why would you put the money into it, et cetera? And the thing about that is that when you look at a place when it's in bad condition, when you know water hasn't been checked for a while and the roof is bad and plaster is falling off, you think, wow, this place is in really bad shape. And often they are big projects, but we also forget how many places that we take for granted were right on the border of being demolished or were in that condition. I mean, we talk about Broadway a little bit, but another good example is the Ellis Island Immigration Hospital, right? I mean, that was a thing where uh, Lee Iacocca, I think it was, donated the money to have that restored. And the building was, it was in really rugged condition before that. And now it's like this great museum that's one of the tourist destinations of New York City. So you see these things that that are around you every day that you might not think, oh, this thing just about didn't exist. Yeah, and unfortunately, there are also some that didn't make it there. Like, I always think of uh, the original Penn Station, demolished. But, you know, the, you know, like I said, I brought up the New Amsterdam earlier that Disney restored. If you see the photos of that place uh, before the restoration, it looks worse than a lot of the places I've shot. Like you wouldn't, you'd be surprised that someone would spend money to bring it back. And it is amazing. It's one of the most beautiful theaters I've ever seen. Wrapping up here, the last thing that I think we were going to cover was like the future of theaters. Where do they go from here? And particularly this being, of course, this is going to date us if people are listening to this five years from now, and hopefully the world has gone back to sanity. But um, at this point with COVID, it's really a big kind of threat to theaters, both live theater and movie theaters. And I was doing a little bit of research into that. And actually, it's funny, yesterday, the LA Times came out with two articles that were directly addressing that. One of them was about how the National Association of Theater Owners were saying 70% of small to mid-sized theaters may go under. And they're, at this point, they're closed in markets that are like 30% of their box office sales. So this is a point that's really precarious. And I know you've said like with a lot of the places that were in the midst of restoration projects, like everything, this COVID 
path through a big wrench right in the middle of that. Yeah, there's uh, there's two theaters that I can think of off the top of my head. The Lyric Theater in Birmingham, Alabama, and its sister theater, the Alabama Theater. They're both owned by the same uh, company, and they've been forced to run like a GoFundMe just to stay open because you know this this is happening if theaters i feel like if they don't get some sort of assistance you know i'm going to be very busy for a very long time yeah and, and the thing is that all these art groups are having gofundmes and things like that at once as thousands of people are losing their jobs and don't have the income to donate to them so um, i'm really happy that we're making sure that the corporations aren't paying taxes and the wealthiest people aren't paying taxes and they're the ones getting the tax breaks and and uh not necessarily supporting these these smaller organizations because yeah i mean it's not just theaters tons of things are potentially going to blink out and when you look at theaters for example like the, just the movie theaters they're saying that there are about 150,000 jobs that are caught or created by the theaters and a lot of those are hourly and part-time and they're saying like two-thirds of those could vanish. You know, basically they were they were also saying that 93% of the exhibitors saw their revenues plummet like 75% or more in the second quarter. So, I mean, uh, they're basically lobbying lawmakers to kind of, you know, put some money aside from for them. But again, the problem is that like everybody is hoping that somebody will bail them out. And uh, right now, I mean, it, it really seems like uh, the people that are sort of lowest on the totem pole in terms of working are not the ones that are necessarily getting that. The other thing, too, is obviously live theaters taking a big hit. So the other article, they were talking about Alternative Theater Los Angeles, uh, which is a group that is a bunch of people that are involved with live theater, and they're trying to come up with ideas so that they can kind of move forward in this period. And they had a uh, like, for example, one was uh, called Together LA, where they take actors in their home and composite them in together. And basically, it's uh, like 10-minute plays. And they're trying to figure out best practices for opening theaters safely again, uh, also lobbying to try and carve out money for smaller theaters and things like that, increasing public awareness. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's not just here either. It's happening at theaters, like I know theaters in the UK that are doing the same thing, trying to figure out how they're going to uh, survive this. And this is, it's similar, you know, the, it, kind of the same thing happened uh, during the last pandemic, which was the Spanish flu in uh, 1918. And unfortunately, then a lot of the independent theaters were forced to close and the larger theater companies ended up buying them. And it's it's sort of how... Uh, like Paramount, which was famous players at the time, got their chain. How their chain was formed was buying up all these closed theaters that closed due to the Spanish flu. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I didn't know about that, but I guess that makes sense. You have a situation where if you have a lot of closed places and somebody has all the money, they're going to come and snatch them all up. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely an interesting time in looking at the future. I mentioned earlier that my wife is the uh, artistic director of a film festival, and this has been an extremely challenging year for them in the sense that you know, they, they operate on a small budget, they operate with a small staff, and now all of a sudden they've got to completely redo their platform so that it's all online streaming. And then kind of what we were talking about earlier, like what is the incentive that you offer people to come to see movies when they could just watch something on Netflix or whatever? 
Yeah, it, exactly. And something that I, I've kind of been been kicking around, and it's uh, I think it was AMC, and there was a thing called Movie Pass for a minute that blew up and is gone, I believe now. But AMC, AMC has, uh, I think it's has something similar where you pay uh, like almost a subscription monthly to be able to go to a theater. And there were some live performance theaters that did something similar where you'd buy a yearly, it was almost like a season pass. So you mm-hmm. can see the, each play. And I kind of feel like something like that is might be in their future once things stabilize and they're able to reopen. You know, luckily a uh, larger performing arts center has lend very well to social distancing. So right. if they're, you know, they are cleaning them thoroughly, you can very easily sit three, four, five seats away. But that goes back to the point that I brought up earlier. These places are very expensive to cool and heat. So right. if you're only have if you have a three thousand seat performing arts center and you're only allowing seven hundred people in it at a time, you're not gonna you're not making enough money to justify that so i i you know I, i'm not uh one to say the government should step in and save and you know fix out all the problems but in this case the government should step in and, and figure this out until we are they're able to all reopen safely and people feel like they can go to these places uh at the same rate they used to well and that that brings me to something which i thought was really important to mention too which is that it's really critical for people if you have the means to support the arts. If you like having a theater, if you like having uh, independent film festivals where you get to see things that are movies that you might not have got a chance to watch otherwise, where you have an opportunity to directly ask questions of the people that made them or that are involved in them. I mean, really, with the arts in general right now, it's it's there's a lot of struggling. There are a lot of GoFundMes. There are a lot of people that are desperately needing help and they're all competing for this shrinking pool of grants because grants are really evaporating right now too they're taking away grants for the arts and using them for other things yeah i mean again i know a lot of people are are really hurting at this moment financially but if you're able to it would really encourage people to think what can i personally do to patronize these places uh, so that i can continue to have them in my future Exactly. So if you have a local theater, I mean, if it's open, try to go. If it's closed, you know, try to find if they're doing, some of them are doing live events that you can watch on Facebook. Some of them are doing streaming events that you can pay five, $10 to just see at home. And, you know, they, they need your help. Right. So I think that about wraps it up for today. That was actually a really great conversation. I think anything that you'd like to touch on before we sign off. I agree. That was uh, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed. Uh, my, I think my wrap up is basically: if you, like I said a minute ago, if you see a local theater that needs some help, please try to. Well, I can be found at Matt Lambros on Twitter, After the Frontal Curtain on Facebook and Instagram, and After the Frontal Curtain net. And if this is a subject that interests you, may I humbly recommend two great books? Well, three. There's the King's Theater book. Uh, that's a little harder to get though, but the it's on Amazon. I am the person who sells them on Amazon, and I definitely have some. Uh, and and there's also After the Final Curtain and After the Final Curtain 2, Electric Boogaloo. Yes, that is the title of the book. <laughs> <laughs> and one other fun thing about those books is, uh, just since we're on the theaters, I totally nerded out, and uh, the Bridgeport Theaters, they're on the cover of the first book, and I got Matt to sign 
my copy of that book in that theater that was on the cover and he wrote the lyrics from Golden Girls in it and I thought he was making fun of me. <laughs> I did write the Golden Girls lyrics. That is, uh, I thought that was uh, fitting. So I am uh, Matthew Christopher and you can find me at Abandoned Americ all one word on Twitter. They will not let me have the A on the end, but really, I mean, essentially, if you look up Abandoned America anywhere, you will find me and uh, you can send me an email and I will reply to it about five months later. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, on that note, I'm going to jump off. All right. Uh, thanks so much, Matt. Good yeah, talking to you and I look forward to doing this again next week. Thank you. I will uh, talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye.